You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. We've reached the middle of the week, Wednesday the 6th of July. This is Money Talk on Radio 3. Peter Lewis here with the day's business headlines. China's economic chief, Vice Premier Liu He, and US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen held a virtual conference on Tuesday at the request of the United States. It was their first call since October. The official Xinhua news agency reported that the two sides had a pragmatic and frank exchange on macroeconomic tariff and supply chain issues, as well as rising commodity prices and food security challenges. The talks come as President Biden is considering a rollback of some of the Trump administration's $300 billion of U.S. tariffs on Chinese consumer goods this week, along with a new probe into industrial subsidies that may lead to more duties in strategic areas like technology. Activity in China's private services sector staged a stronger rebound than expected last month. The Kaishin Services PMI for June came in at 54.5, marking the highest level in 11 months. The index was boosted by slowing input cost inflation and a rise in new orders, while a sub-index for employment showed businesses had slowed the rate at which they were cutting jobs. Hong Kong's retirement scheme for workers, the mandatory Provident Fund, has suffered its biggest half-yearly loss since the scheme was launched. According to data provided by MPF Ratings, an independent pension research firm, the fund lost almost 13% in the first six months of 2022. That translates into an average loss of 33,300 Hong Kong dollars for each of the 4.6 million members of the scheme. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Pete Sweeney, Asia Editor at Reuters Breaking Views, and RTHK's International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street overnight, US equities recovered from steep losses, Treasury bonds and the dollar surged, the yield curve inverted, and the price of oil plummeted as traders were gripped by recession fears in the US on their return from a long weekend holiday. The S&P 500 index rebounded from losses of over 2% to move into the green in the final hour of trading, closing 0.2% higher at 3,831. The Dow ended the day 129 points lower at 30,968. The Nasdaq Composite recovered from losses of 2% to close 1.8% higher at 11,322. European markets closed before the sharp rebound on Wall Street kicked in. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index ended the day 2.1% lower. London's FTSE 100 slumped 2.9%. Hong Kong stocks rallied at the open on Tuesday on hopes that some US tariffs on Chinese goods could soon be lifted, but they gave up most of their gains as the day wore on. The Hang Seng Index closed just 23 points, or 0.1% higher, at 21,853. The Hang Seng Tech Index fell half a percent. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite, that dropped just one point to 3,404. 
Lots of activity in the commodities markets overnight. Rising recession fears have led to heavy selling across the commodities complex. Oil prices saw their largest decline since March the 9th, and it was near a record decline, in fact, Brent crude oil fell almost 10% to $102.77 a barrel. U.S. natural gas plunged 3.6% and national gas prices in the U.S. are down for 21 straight days. Gold was bashed lower by the surging U.S. dollar. It's down almost 2.5% this morning at $1,769 an ounce. That's the lowest level since October 2021. And copper tumbled 5.3% to $341.50 per pound. That's the lowest level since November 2020. The yield on the benchmark benchmark 10-year US Treasury note fell 7 basis points to 2.82%. It's now down 67 basis points from an 11-year high of 3.49%. It hit just on June the 14th. And the Treasury market flashed a further warning of recession yesterday when the yield on 10-year bonds slumped below those on two-year notes for the third time this year. Inversions of the yield curve have preceded every U.S. recession in the past 50 years. And the U.S. dollar surged higher on the back of a tumbling euro. The U.S. dollar index is up 1.3%. That's the biggest one-day jump since June 2020. The euro has fallen to a 20-year low against the dollar as investors worried about the rising risks of recession in the eurozone. The single currency slid 1.5% to 1.0266 and it's moving closer to parity with the dollar. The Japanese yen is at 135.5 against the dollar. Sterling tumbled 1.2% to $1.19.5 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 38 cents. The falls have come as the UK government appears close to collapse after the resignation of the finance minister, the health secretary and four junior cabinet ministers following a string of scandals over behaviour amongst MPs. The Chinese yuan is at 6.71 in offshore markets and Bitcoin has regained the $20,000 level, rising more than 2%. And right now, it's at $20,300. And with all that, a lot of movements going on in the market today. Let's check out Asia-Pacific stocks. The ASX 200 in Australia, currently down half a percent. Stocks in Japan have opened lower than Nikkei 225, off 0.8%. The Cosby in South Korea is down 1%. And futures markets pointing to a loss of 200 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. It's 8.10, much to discuss, much going on to help us wade our way through all of that. We have with us Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Oldcroft, as we always do on a Wednesday morning. Morning, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter. Pity it's a bit of a wet, damp squid of a morning, but there we go. Yep, sorry about that. Not my (laughs) fault, though. We also have with us over in our Queensway studio, Pete Sweeney, Asia Editor at Reuters Breaking Views. Morning to you, Pete. Good morning, sir. And over in Washington, D.C., we find our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. Hello, Barry. Can you hear me over there? Good in morning. Yes, oh, yes, good morning, good, Peter. Good. I hope you hear me. I can I hear hope you, you hear now. Me. I was a bit worried there. Well, well <laughs> Excellent. Look, let, let's start with you, Barry, because we've got uh, talks going on 
Uh, about President Biden considering a rollback of some of the Trump administration's $300 billion of U.S. tariffs on Chinese consumer goods this week. And also uh, Vice Premier Lou Her and U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen held a virtual conference yesterday. Tell us a little bit about your assessment of what's going on, because there's a lot of politics involved in this, isn't there? Indeed, there are, Peter. No, look, I think what uh, you're hearing me OK, right? I can hear you loud and clear. Excellent. I, I think, uh, first of all, it's very positive these talks take place because uh, this sets up now at a higher level the future for a President G, President Biden discussion, a video conference leading on towards the the, uh, the Bali summit that will be at the end of October. So that's positive. We also see that Janet Yellen has trumped Catherine Tai. Uh, after all, you'd expect the Treasury Secretary to be more important than the United States Trade Representative. But it's elevated the talks. The talks are positive. There's going to be some reduction in tariffs. We've been expecting this for several weeks. It didn't happen at the Elmao G7 summit. It will happen in the next few days. I think the talks went well. I think the question in my mind, Peter, is, is this going to be a reduction of tariffs out of those $300 billion of goods that are tariffed at high levels? Will it be on consumer goods or producer goods? And I think that's an open question. So, you, so your reference there to Janet Yellen and Catherine Tai, just to clarify uh, for listeners, I think Janet Yellen wasn't in favour of these tariffs, was she? She thinks they haven't had an effect, whilst the trader representative Catherine Tai thought that they were quite useful leverage against China. But you're saying, Barry, yeah. that uh, Janet Yellen has won out and therefore it's likely that some of these tariffs will be removed. Yes, and I think Janet Yellen's position, Peter, is that this is going to be a positive move towards bringing inflation down, particularly if you go towards the consumer goods. We'll see what happens. But, yeah, I think Catherine ties on her back foot. She'll still get some leverage because I don't think all of the tariffs are going to be lifted. It seems to me, Barry, that um, there has been quite a bit of mood music coming out of the U.S. government in favor of making changes to the tariffs. So it, on, on the one hand, they don't want to see the tariffs removed, but they do want to see um, some of the tariffs changed, possibly some of them removed, and, and, and they do see them as something of a negotiation uh, platform for future relations as well. Would, would that be right? Yes, it would be absolutely right. I think the complicating factor for the president is that many trade unions here in the States don't want these tariffs reduced. They like the tariffs, particularly those in industries that, that uh, are going to be affected by higher levels of Chinese imports. So mm. we shall see. It's been a delicate matter. But at the same time, it's been 18 months since President Trump left office, and we still haven't seen the Trump tariffs lifted. So yeah, but, but I think it's coming. Those unions also have been Trump supporters. You know, they may not have been at the leadership level, but certainly the most of those voters are Trumpists. There's no doubt about that, Stuart. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering what happens, you know, in terms of the negotiations with Xi, because this is not being done because China has done anything to accommodate American demands or much the opposite. So the, the argument from Catherine Tsai and, and that group of people is that, like, if you're going to negotiate with China, you just have to take a bunch of stuff off the table and then wait for concessions. And, you know, Biden's political problem is that, that none have come. And it's pretty obvious that whatever she shows up and offers will be minimal. Um, so what we've been seeing from Biden struggling with this is this attempt to kind of look tough in other ways while softening in this one kind of 
you know, the tariffs didn't work, the trade war didn't work, yes. um, they've increased costs. That said, like, if he just cuts tariffs on some consumer goods, I mean, the inflation problem in the States is not related to the cost of Chinese consumer goods. It's called, you know, food, energy, stuff like that. Um, so there's not going to, the consumer is not going to notice, um, you know, an adjustment in one space that's followed by a tightening in others. That's yes, true. I think that, I mean, it's interesting, Pete, though, that because I think when you look at what was going on, the tariffs are the headline, but the negotiations cover more than just simply the tariffs and it's it's a great deal more about the relations and um th there is stuff coming out of china which suggests that um particularly in the financial world the 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 opening up of the china market is beginning to uh, return to the thinking process of the regulators um as, as many people might be aware uh, many global financial companies, for example, have wanted to set up their own businesses in China. Um, they've been buying up their China partners, and so what they're looking at is the opportunity of doing business for themselves in China. And, and all of that has been um, very, very slow progress, uh, desperately slow progress. Um, and, and there is certainly rumor about the fact that um, that is something that is looking to to be opened up during the autumn period. And my understanding was that the opening, I mean, we had this during the first round of trade negotiations where there was this opening up of, of access for, for Wall yes. Street firms and all these things. And that's that's been going underway. But I mean, but I don't think anybody happened. was in because uh, what, what, what happened was that the companies were uh, allowed to apply but then they need to go through the whole process of application to get the final approval, and the final approvals have, have been held back. That's true, yeah. One of yeah, the I think it's coming at a, at a good time, because yes. we're seeing fuel prices come down, we're seeing easing at the ports in Los Angeles, Long Beach, and in Shanghai, and I think that the administration, if they reduce some tariffs in the next few days, will point to this and saying, see, we're doing the right thing, inflation's coming down. Yeah. Do you think it will, though? I mean, that, that's the prime driver, isn't it? Will this really reduce inflation? As, as Pete says, you know, it's not going to bring down food prices or, or oil prices. And I'm wondering how politicians in the U.S. will react if these tariffs are removed and inflation still doesn't come down. I, I well, that's, 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 issues, that's true. Though, Peter, is that uh, the U.S. has not been impacted in inflation pressures, uh, and, and that's, that's something for further discussion, but it's not been impacted on inflation pressures by fuel prices in the same way as Europe has. Um, Europe has been very badly affected by fuel prices, which has really pushed up inflation massively, and that's because of the weakness of their currencies. And in the U.S., of course, you know, oil is priced in U.S. dollars, and therefore it has been a great deal less impactful on the U.S. economy. I mean, I think the thing that's going to really bring down inflation is going to be recession, right? Yeah, I think we're, we're, you're right, Peter. The, the, war, the war in Ukraine is not over. Um, we still have the possibility that, that Russia will cut off gas supplies to Europe. Um, like every, all that stuff is still very much in play. Um, you know, China, the world's second largest economy, supply chains are still distorted. Nobody knows when COVID zero ends. Um, so all these factors are negative. What is bringing down, you know, the oil prices is expectations of, of con economic contraction, um, mm -hmm. which is nothing anybody's going to cheer. Just back to the point about the, the Chinese negotiations, just to tie it off, I guess. I mean, I, I agree that like what we might get out of negotiations is, is some accelerated financial opening. I would just point out 
that politically speaking, this is nothing that Biden can bring back to his constituency. Say, see, I won more access for Wall Street. I mean, what the Trump era made quite clear <laughs> You're is right. that nobody cares. Like electorally, you know, that's nice for Goldman Sachs, but it just doesn't travel. And uh, and it, I mean, the Chinese have to wonder how sustainable it's going to be if Biden comes off looking too weak here. You know, what happens in other areas that are more critical, like, you know, technology, export control, stuff like that. It is true, Barry, isn't it, that President Biden's facing a lot of criticism over his handling of uh, this this inflation situation. We had Jeff Bezos over the weekend uh, tweeting that, uh, you know, he the way in which he was handling it just wasn't very good. It seems like he's almost tweeting at petrol stations now or oil companies <laughs> to bring down the price of oil. He does seem to have lost the plot a bit, doesn't he? I agree with that. And let's not forget, Jeff Bezos is a is the owner of the Washington Post. The Washington Post is a solidly democratic paper in every respect, and so is Jeff Bezos. But I think we need a longer-term perspective. Let's go back to the 1970s. We were always talking about price controls. Let's, let's freeze the price of gasoline. At least there's none of that discussion now. So I think that the whole Bezos versus Biden, and it goes on even at the White House in the last few hours, is really a tempest in a teacup. I think you've got that exactly right. It's not going to have any impact in terms of the filling station. But, you know, the, the oil companies have got a point when they say, hey, let's, let's open up some of the drilling that the president closed down on his first day in office. Mm. Yeah, interestingly, Barry, I'm, I'm going to take another view on this. I, I'm looking at this as seeing Jeff Bezos making his first pitch to maybe become the next Democratic presidential candidate. Um, and, uh, you know, he, it wouldn't be the first time that a big businessman has wanted to become a president. The unions are going to love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Stuart, we heard it first from you. First you, from you, Stuart Alcott. <laughs> we will see about this, won't we? But, yeah. but has, have, have inflation fears, though, now, have they been overtaken by recession fears? If you look at what yes, the markets have, have done, you know, in the bond yield space, uh, in commodities overnight, they've just completely collapsed, haven't they? And, and things like copper, uh, which are more than six months low now, um, are sort of often seen as an indicator of the economy. Is recession now the number one concern? I, I do think it is. And I think if you get what we have, Q1 had a decline in the economy of 1.6%, expectations now going down 2.1% in the second quarter. Well, any way you measure it, that means we're already in recession. So, yeah, I think the recession talk is going to accelerate and inflation talk will diminish, particularly since, as you and Stuart have said, the commodity prices are coming down and the oil price is coming down. So we, we shall see. Yeah, I mean, it would be a weird relief in Asia. I mean, in like, it's an odd thing because the, the recession signs we're seeing are kind of mixed. Employment in the States is still okay. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering, I mean, I guess if you're Japan, if you're China, you know, if you're looking at what's going to happen to your export markets, you're quite nervous. I mean, you've got this issue with your interest rates and your currencies. Um, you know, a lot of floating rate mortgages in Hong Kong are about to go up, I think. Um, but, yeah, but uh, I think if, you, if you're the average consumer, the average consumer will have more concern about uh, a recession simply because that means job losses, yeah. uh, whereas inflation means higher prices and it just reduces savings where you've got them. So I think the, the, the fear of job losses is a very 
real one for, for many people, and that's going to focus a lot of people's attention, particularly over the next um, 12 months, I would, I would guess. Yes, I think you've got it right. This economy has been whipsawed. Look at all the money that was poured into it during the COVID period. And now we've had an unprecedented rise in interest rates. I know that I was wrong, Stuart, about the 50 versus 75 basis point rise. Oh, you Everyone talks <laughs> about another rise coming. But you know, yes. the, the, the Fed could shift again and whipsaw to a rate decline. This mm. is a very volatile period, and it really makes you realize the central bank has got a tough, tough job. Well, and I think that's the, the biggest worry for everybody is they keep on yanking like this cycle where, you know, they never quite get the mix, the porridge, the right temperature. And so the rent rates go up and down and up and down and up and down. And we have a period of like five years where central banks are trying to readjust to the new environment and, and moving these levers back and forth. Um, and I think that actually is is more risky for business confidence and consumer confidence than with, than with just this, a recession that you get through. I think everybody has sort of wrapped their heads around the fact that you need to you know, the party needs to end and, you know, you need to kind of nurse your hangover and, and drink. But in this debate versus inflation, inflation versus recession and whether it's worse for rising prices or workers to lose their jobs, what are the chances that we get both um, inflation and a recession? I well, that is, of course, chance, yeah, I think you're right. This is the risk. That would be the 70s stagflation. But I've got a feeling, and again, I've been wrong on the Fed, but I think the Fed is going to slay the inflation dragon. You know, there's nothing like this kind of a rate increase to scare the bejesus out of people. And I don't think that we're going to get wage rises, particularly as people losing jobs because of inf uh, recession fears. So, yeah, that's a possibility, but, but it wouldn't be my guess. It's Stuart Allcraft's guess. <laughs> Thank you. You committed me there. <laughs> if, if you look at Nomura, they were saying this week that uh, that too much tightening by central banks is going to send not just the U.S. but major economies into recession next year, as well as the U.S. They say the EU, the U.K., Japan, South Korea, Australia, and Canada are all going to sink into recession. Do you, do you see that as a as a possibility or a likelihood? Uh, again, yes, I think it's a very likely prospect because, of course, the world economy is, is generally uh, tracks what the U.S. does. Uh, the U.S. is such a dominant economy. And if the U.S. goes into, in, uh, into some form of recession, it's very, very likely that you'll see many other economies that have got a close reliance on it follow. Uh, added to the fact that uh, particularly Europe and UK, where they are um, in a much more dangerous position because of very high levels of uh, fuel prices, as I said, that's being caused by the weakness of their currencies. They've got the uh, Russia-Ukraine war going on, um, and uh, no one really knows what's going to happen there. Mm. And that's, that's such a big uh, unknown. The, the worry is, isn't it, that once a recession starts, uh, these high interest rates and the recession could trigger a housing bust uh, in some countries. There's signs of that already happening in New Zealand. That's just going to make the recession a lot worse for a whole range of economies, isn't it? Uh, yes. Including here. Here, well, again, we've been more immune to a lot of these things because, uh, first of all, of course, we're dependent on the U.S. dollar, and that's not affected us because of the price of fuel and the price of oil being in U.S. dollars. Um, we've also benefited in the past from Chinese money coming into Hong Kong to support the property industry, and if the if 
COVID ends or some form of opening up of the border occurs, we could assume that there will be a return of some of that Chinese money, which will support the Hong Kong economy. But I, again, I don't think the Hong Kong economy is immune from the possibility of, uh, first of all, higher inflation, and secondly, um, the, the potential for some form of recession. Pete, where does China fit in? Does China, which has um, a much more accommodative monetary policy, um, and maybe also Japan as well, do they save themselves from recession by that? Two very different <laughs> countries. I know, there. very different economies. Um, you know, China, I think everything is, I mean, what, what has really been bulking up the Chinese economy, like this fundamental support has been the export strength throughout all this. So but that think, comes, falls apart, doesn't it, if the world goes into recession? That's the biggest risk I see. I mean, I think it has given them space to attack these other parts of the economy where they see risk, especially their property market. I mean, a, a huge amount, for, for all the externalities, a lot of the, the pain in China is self-inflicted, right? Um, these are the results of technology crackdowns, real estate crackdowns, so on and so forth, and they, they decided to do those, and they're following through. Um, there's been all this media reporting about how, you know, of picking up government comments about how we're going to be easier on technology and we're going to make these tweaks to real estate and everything, but they, there hasn't been anything major in those spaces, and the correction continues apace. Um, but they've been able to execute that, I think, like the softness of, of consumer demand inside, because consumer out demand outside has remained strong. So that's China. I do not think they have a lot of room monetarily to ease further, and they know this. They've said they're not doing flood-style stimulus because they just reinflate these problems they're trying to fight now. It would be this major defeat and setback for Xi Jinping. You know, they've explicitly targeted the way the real estate market works and how much capital it's absorbing and how it's increasing the cost of living for ordinary people, deterring childbirth, it's getting blamed for everything. Um, you know, so it would take a lot for him to have to back off on that. With Japan, I mean, you've got a totally different situation, but uh, I mean, the yen is what, 136, 137? Yeah. It's falling through the bot. So that's great for listed, giant listed Chinese companies that do a lot of export business. Um, you know, it is producing inflation. I think the, the non-core inflation, total inflation is 2.1%, something including everything. Yep. Yep. So that's very manageable. Um, you know, I think the, the direction of travel is worried that it hits 150, but it's all about the currency. But I mean, it looks like so far that Kuroda and Kishida are for now, um, wrapping their heads around the fact that they might have a very, very weak currency for the foreseeable future. But in that case, I mean... You know, a recession in the States puts money back into the yen. You know, Japanese money pulling out of, of, of dollars um, back into back into their home currency. That's what puts a floor under it, I think. So then we could get a sharp rebound in the yen. Yeah, you get a rebound in the yen, but for bad reasons, right? It's because demand for, for, Chinese, uh, for Japanese products overseas is weakening. Um, so that's, that's not good. But I mean, Japan has really got kind of its hands tied. They haven't gotten the wage hikes they want. Like Japan Inc. has kind of sat on its hands on a lot of these things. Um, you know, they, they just haven't made the progress they want to do in terms of structurally reforming the way the companies work. And, um, you know, that makes it difficult for them to to, to change their, their monetary stance. Um, so I understand why they're being stubborn. I don't think it's sustainable. A lot of people are betting it's not. But, you know, 
the the, the famous Undertaker trade is yeah, the <laughs> go, going after the Japanese yeah. government bond yields. <laughs> That's the one. Well, sadly, love to talk more about this, but we've run out of time. So thank you all very much. That's Pete Sweeney, Asia editor at Reuters Breaking Views, uh, Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, and our international economics correspondent. Would. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. With all that movement going on in the markets, let's see how Asian equity markets are looking at the moment. About half an hour into the open. In Australia, the SX200 is down 0.1%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off 1%. The Cosby slipping further into the red, down 1.1% now. Futures markets pointing to a loss of 150 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, as always, with Money Talk. Back chats coming up after the news with Janice Wong and James Ockenden and the weather forecast. Mainly cloudy with showers, few thunderstorms. Maximum temperature is going to be around 30 degrees and those showers and thunderstorms are going to continue tomorrow, but the weather will improve gradually in the latter part of this week. Temperature right now uh, is 29 degrees. There is a thunderstorm warning in force, effective until 10.30, and the relative humidity is 81%. Times 8.31 and a half. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Two senior British ministers have resigned over controversies linked to the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The Finance Minister Rishi Sunak and the Health Secretary Sajid Javid have both handed in their resignations, piling more pressure on the beleaguered Conservative leader. Mr. Johnson has now appointed Nadim Zahawi, the former Education Secretary, as Finance Minister. Mr. Johnson has been accused of making several misleading statements, most recently about a colleague who had drunkenly groped fellow members at a private club. The leader of the opposition party, uh, opposition Labour Party, Keir Starmer, said Britain now needed a fresh government. It's clear that this Tory government is now collapsing. And Tory cabinet ministers, if they had a shred of integrity, they would have gone months ago. The Tory party is corrupted, and changing one man at the top won't fix it. We need a real change of government and a fresh start for Britain. Police in Chicago say that the man suspected of shooting dead six people and injuring 30 others at a 4th of July parade was dressed as a woman to hide his facial tattoos. Police are still questioning 21-year-old Robert Cremo, who opened fire on celebrations marking the day America became an independent nation. Lake County Sergeant Christopher Covelli gave more details. We do believe Cremo pre-planned this attack for several weeks. Uh, He brought a high-powered rifle to this parade. He accessed the roof of a business via a fire escape ladder and began opening fire on the innocent Independence Day celebration goers. The rifle was purchased in Illinois, and the information we have thus far is that it appears to have been purchased legally by Cremo. Back locally, police say the high court received a parcel containing unknown powder yesterday afternoon. Officers from the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Bureau arrived to handle it, and investigations are ongoing. No one has been arrested so far. 
And finally, the Hong Kong Wild Boar Concern Group is again urging the government to scrap a policy that allows it to capture and kill the feral animals and to revive its contraception and relocation scheme. Ronnie Wong was commenting after the government announced it wanted to expand a ban on the feeding of the wild animals to cover all of Hong Kong and introduce tougher penalties for offenders in a bid to curtail the nuisance caused by wild boar in urban areas. Mr. Wong told RTHK the government needed better urban planning to reduce conflict between people and wildlife. Our organization do not oppose the suggestion by the government in stepping up the effort in combating the illegal feeding of the rubbles. I think more important is that the government should firstly terminate the killing wild policy first and republish the incest uh, contraception and return policy of the wild You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Janice Wong and my co-host today is James Ockenden. Good morning.